0: hello and welcome to making the museum i'm jonathan alger and this is a project of c and g partners design for culture today i'm joined by samir bittar samir welcome to the show hey there jonathan thank you so to get started for those who don't know you could you tell our listeners who you are and what you do
1: so i am a visitor experience expert a little bit bashful saying that but i'm been helping cultural institutions, mainly museums, but now cultural cemeteries, theaters. I help culturals understand their audience in order to grow and probably more importantly, to diversify. We've been talking about how to diversify audiences in the art at least 17, 15, 17 years that I've been in this space. <clears throat> and so it's really, really nice to see broader society in America, wake up to this in the past two, three years, and really prioritize the diversification, the broadening of audiences in our cultural institutions. And so that's those are the techniques, tools that I bring to culturals, helping them understand who is currently visiting, who's not currently visiting, and how do we go about, in a strategic, systematic way, how do we go about understanding that and then crafting our spaces Improving our services, et cetera, to in fact not only invite them, but ensure that our spaces, our programs are engaging and do
0: resonate authentically with these broader audiences. And you, your background, you came out of, if I remember correctly, you came out of the Smithsonian, is that right? Oh, yes.
1: How do you, I this? Yes. Yeah, so I really discovered, so I'm a professionally trained dancer, right? I danced for 15 years. And within that context of the art, I moved into graduate school at Carnegie Mellon, and that's where I first learned my focus was in marketing. And it's within that context that I really began to explore this idea of authentic customer engagement, visitor engagement. And so from graduate school, I then went on to the Smithsonian American Indian Museum in New York City, and then spent 11 years ultimately founding the Smithsonian's first office of visitor experience, where I, my my team and I helped all 19 museums and the National Zoo do what I just explained, what I just laid out. Yeah, So, yeah, so in 2019, I guess, I, I left the Smithsonian, founded my own firm, The Art of Consulting, and now I work with culturals from California to New York City across the country doing just that
0: and you are in LA right now, right? That's where you're. I now, live in
1: Los, I now live in Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles.
0: Okay, so our theme today is the visitor engagement life cycle. There are two new words in here for me. One is engagement and one is life cycle instead of journey, which implies that it's circling back on itself. Are those two words important?
1: It's, I think they're important for all firms in the market. I think it's particularly important for resource strapped Cultural organizations, arts organizations, the we all know that the most effective, least expensive way to build audiences is word of mouth. Word of mouth is it. It's king. So that's a that's one obvious or fundamental reason why we need to look at engagement. But also for cultural organizations, nonprofits, et cetera, we are mission-driven organizations. Not it's not a profit motive. It's there's a mission. And I heard a scientist once at Smithsonian Natural History. We were years out building a massive new dinosaur exhibition, permanent exhibition, and we're all, why are we doing this? And we're, we're digging deeper and deeper about engagement, or why are we setting aside all this time and all these millions of dollars? And she said, to engender a more informed citizenry, to engender a more informed citizenry. And that was one of the most, at that point, one of the most articulated expressions uh, purpose that i had heard from a curator or scientist from a decision maker or influencer a intercultural and she nailed it that is when we talk about a, an organization's mission it is about influencing society it's about moving the needle some way and if you don't understand how you engage <laughs> you don't understand if, if you're hitting the mark or how you're how you are resonating with audiences that, A, you're not meeting your mission perhaps, but also are you ensuring, or are you fostering that that word of mouth pass along? So that's the point. Those are the two points that I really make with students when I teach, or more importantly, perhaps with leaders, boards, and directors of cultural organizations. We have, it takes longer. It might cost a bit more, but we need to look at, at not just who visitors are through surveys and yes, absolutely journey mapping, but understanding all the engagement points and how folks who are visiting are engaging and how folks who are not visiting would want to engage. And then ensuring that we design, like I said, the physical spaces, the digital tools, et cetera. um, And then we track that as a life cycle, right? Person A comes through all the way through the five steps or so. And then understanding as they leave the exit narrative, if you will, uh, not only have we influence, but then what is that sort of post visit behavior, i.e., bringing in maybe
0: their friends or
1: other visitors later?
0: Is there another part of this you mentioned? I think it's a great insight that word of mouth is the, it takes a little bit longer for it to work than a billboard on a highway, but it's the cheapest and perhaps organically the most solid way to get the word out there. If you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door. But also this idea of the cycle, you said that people who are exiting turn into people who will come back. Is that another part of it? Could you go so far as to say the least, the new visitor that's the least expensive to acquire is a visitor you already have. It's less effort to encourage them to come back with their friends than to encourage a completely new person?
1: Absolutely, that's exactly the point, right? So it's, yes, so you bring up a good point. So the billboard Wonderful. We do it. The big organizations can't afford it. The Gettys, the Met's, the smithsonians they can afford the billboard. But two things happen with the billboard. Typically, most importantly, folks who quote unquote know the rules or are familiar or comfortable with this unspoken set of rules, they respond to the billboard, right? There's a reason why for 30, 40 years of research, we see that really it's white people with graduate degrees or more who have historically gone to museums and to the big cultural institutions. Because there is this, there's this assumption or there's this lived experience that there's a set of rules for arts organizations that perhaps I as a Black person or I as a poor person or I as an outsider have not been invited. I don't know the rules. I'm not going to go. So the billboard in that, it's irrelevant. Like I see it. It's a cool piece of art. Unless I really know Keith Haring, maybe I'm a, a gay Black artists living wherever. Maybe I know Keith but broadly, billboards are only speaking typically to the folks who are already been invited. And word of mouth, when your friend says, this is amazing, right? You trust that. Billboard, I don't know, right? When a friend says this, okay, I trust. And so it breaks down, it does break down barriers, right? And it's really important as well as critical, it's absolutely everything, to understand the organization's efficacy in engagement, authentically engaging, because when uninitiated friend hears from their friend who went, that's a much more certain sell. It's a much more certain visit. Now, once that new person comes in, we have to do all that we can to get them to then be a champion, right? <laughs> but yeah, billboards are will happen, but I don't advise culturals really to put too much money there. I think there's a lot there are much more effective channels to resource for to to increase engagement or
0: increase visitation. Got it. Noted. Okay, so let's get into the visitor experience life cycle. So here we're talking about five main phases, and we're going to talk about those. They're spread, uh, as you've said, along a journey in three chunks, before, during, and after a visit. It's important. For a visual, we think of these phases not as a straight line, although we're going to talk about them in a linear way. We should think about them as a circle where phase 5 just leads right back to phase 1. So number 1 is in the pre-visit period and that is the discover phase and here the visitor is gathering information. Tell us more about that phase. What's going on here? How long does it last? For some visitors does is that the only phase they ever do and they don't come?
1: Yeah, that's a good very good question. And you know, it's funny this is the devil is in the details here. So in probably it wasn't until my third year at the Smithsonian, it and I realized for me, it was a, an unconscious knowledge, sensitivity, appreciation that I had. But it finally emerged as a conscious sort of awareness. Three years in or so, I realized that my bosses, exhibition designers, my colleagues at the museums, they, for them, the four walls of the museum, that was it. That was it. And clearly, there are things happening outside of the doors of the museum, right? Humans are—it's it's a dynamic experience, right? So I worked very hard to—I did then—I continue to pull pull my colleagues, pull cultural's minds back and pull them up to that thirty thousand. And I do so. I've, I've found a lot of success in showing them, articulating the pre phase, the jury, and the and the post phase. So that's why. That those to be articulated because it really it really helps folks within museums or culturals understand that these even exist right. So once you have these, then you know you dive into what's happening in the pre right. I've articulated discover from the planning and arrived because oftentimes museums or culturals actually a lot of firms they only look to address that which they control. They only look to address that which they control, but in fact, that's an organization-centric view, right? If you look at it, if you switch your perspective paradigm and look at it through the visitor's perspective eyes, so they, whatever reason, there is a there's a moment where they are deciding to go do something, right? Whatever trigger they have to help help with a school project, a family's coming in from out of town, whatever the trigger is. But there's a moment where they're discovering and there is the broad marketplace that they're sifting through. They're discovering, right? Google searching, talking to friends, all the things that you and I and the listeners know, we've all done this, right? Consciously or otherwise. And so if culturals understand, designers understand that that ecosystem (laughs) exists, if we understand that it exists, we embrace that. Then we can look to let we look to design solutions, increase visitation, put triggers in the market. Now we could our triggers can exist in the discover phase, right? It's it's I don't have a quick example off the top of my head, but we if we're only looking at the four walls of our museum, then we're only looking to control that and affect the journey or infect the the decision making after they've arrived right? But if we understand that there are ways that we can influence them to come to our institution in the discover phase, once we realize that exists, then we can go play in that market, whether it's partnerships or... I'm, I'm Here's an example we worked with. So at Smithsonian in D.C., reaching out and being proactive with Dulles Airport and understanding how we can mount exhibition, working with Dulles to mount exhibitions. Understanding there's a discovery phase for arriving tourists at the airport, that's just one example of... That why it's necessary to not only articulate but then play in that space, work to find solutions to insert ourselves into what I've called the, the discovery phase when visitors, when people are looking to discover
0: what to do, right? you were just talking that that's pretty interesting to me that the idea you're emphasizing before that culturals are mission driven, it's not a profit motive. You're also talking about this after years in dance, you went and you were originally going to study marketing and you're applying, I can feel it. You're applying that sensibility, both of those sensibilities actually to our discussion right now. But it's interesting if you add that mission driven piece that you just emphasized, that Dulles example seems to me to be an interesting combination of all those things. The exhibit at Dulles works like a billboard, but it's actually a mission extension. It's actually making a new museum at Dulles. It's extending the museum, the museum like an amoeba out into a little bit further out into culture, out into people by making a new museum. That's natural to the museum. People like to do it. It establishes a new four walls over in that concourse that the museum's happy doing something. But actually, it's actually a 3D billboard. Am I right about that? I've never thought I mean,
1: about it. That I didn't oh, you nailed it. That's exactly that is exactly. I I can't you perfectly said I I can I can add nothing more. And there the Hershord, we did this with the new union market over in Southeast DC. big Blake Wall. Let's we will be the commissioner of artists that everyone once a year will put up a big murals. Museums, culturals, urban spaces often need some beautification. And what better partner to to insert thoughtful, authentic, relevant beautification pieces, additions to our urban landscape. What better partner would be a cultural right? And then also, it's way more clever, way more sophisticated than a billboard. Nothing against billboards. You nailed it exactly. Oh, so,
0: it is from a marketer's point of view. That's guerrilla marketing. Exactly. Right. But from a museum's point of view, that's a that's just doing your mission.
1: And and you get a grant, you get a funder way quicker for an exhibition at Dulles than you get oh, a billboard. Yeah. On the Beltway. <laughs> or,
0: yeah, or around the corner in eastern part of DC or up behind Capitol Hill or whatever. You can get a lot of funders who would love to help beautify those neighborhoods, maybe have their name at the bottom of the mural a little bit too, and all that kind of quid pro quo. But wow, that that is just a genius idea. I think a lot of museums, if they could be told, listen, Samir says, mar- marketing, word of mouth is the best way to go and to get it. Just be a museum over there.
1: And oftentimes oh. we have our buildings where they are, and they're in these parts of the cities, and we know where they are. They were put there 30, 80, 120 years ago. We understand that. And now we, these other parts of our city, they're under underserved, under-resourced. You can't perhaps build a new building over there. And some institutions, they have this, they've solved it or trying to solve it by a mobile van or a mobile unit that will go there. And exactly. But what about these other permanent, more, one could say, more integrated, more authentic expressions of the institution extending mm. into the neighborhoods, like like in such like a piece of public art? A lot of institutions, large institutions, have in their collection large pieces of of outdoor art. You know, and it can rare, very rarely go on view. And so I've been in discussions with several cultures around the country. It's not easy, it takes a lot of thinking and planning for anti-graffiti and maintenance, et cetera. But nonetheless, what if there in, in fact is the insertion of public sculptures or such in these neighborhoods? That's So whether it's a mural or whether it's a big sculpture, I, either way, I think you see the point. And this is one powerful way to authentically resonate with the communities that we are looking to invite into the culture of the culturals who historically have been underinvited, right?
0: Yeah. And it's just, again, it's a uh... The mobile van is appealing because you don't have to think about the specificity of the locale or the venue that it might go. You just have to make it one size fits all. Any parking lot, the back mm-hmm. of any junior high, the behind yeah. any Starbucks. But what you're getting at is museums are actually not very good at making vans. They're good at yeah. making site-specific, from the heart, real things for real people that are based on their story or their collection or the artists that they convene. And all you're saying is just do your thing do it where the people you want to attract are, and you'll attract the people. It's such a it's such a sly idea, without being sly at all. It's a completely genuine. I love that. It's such genuine. It's a genuine marketing maneuver that isn't even marketing. That's great. And mic and drop. I, We're done here. Mic drop. We're finished. Yeah, and <laughs> it's it published.
1: whatever human is in whatever neighborhood or part of the city. Was a, whether it's a tourist at the airport or a resident citizen in whatever neighborhood, inserting yourself, you know, they're going to be discovering where they are, right? So tourists at the airport, local. So that kid, that teenager in that part of the city in that neighborhood, they're going to be discovering, right? Yeah, you can insert yourself online. So when they're looking online, you can have a digital whatever presence. But when you think about discovery, we're pretty thoughtful, comprehensive about okay, how do humans? How are we going about figuring out when we want to do something cultural or when we want to do, go through some informal learning? And that's a, there's a lot of thinking there, a lot of workshopping, a lot of brain trust there. But that these are also the conversations, the the explorations from which we discover, okay, by placing ourselves, by this art, this mural, whatever, by placing the institution in this neighborhood this way, we are now in the ecosystem naturally of discovery, right? So they walk by us every day. It's, maybe it's a neighborhood conversation. It's a buzz. So it's not just nothing against Google ads. but it's not just a Google or a social media ad, right? It's again, it's this integrated authentic location insertion that makes the institution present in
0: in people's discovery phase. And it's also just better free cheese. You know, if you're, if you go into a, if you go into a supermarket and someone is trying to sell you cheese, how do they do it? They give you some of the cheese, right? Yeah. So if you're in Dallas and you're, oh, what are we going to do tomorrow, honey? I don't know. And you walk along, there's a great exhibition in the concourse. Say, oh, look at this. Where is it from? Oh, it's from the portrait gallery. Ooh, la, let's go there. Because it, it is the thing that it's trying to be. Or if you're downtown, you're around the corner. Capitol Hill, wherever, you know, outside of DC and you see this mural, and you're like, wow, that t- mural's terrific. Where's it from? Oh, well, it's from this art museum down. Oh, let's go see more of those. And that's not the same. It's again, it's not an ad for something. It is the thing. And that's what's I don't know. It's just stop this episode right there. That's just great. It's can't it can't get better than this. Let's try. Yeah. It. Okay, number two. The phase number two, we're still in the pre visit This is this phase is your phase is called engage. And here the visitor is now not just discovering, but they're actively planning a visit. They're getting tickets. They're calling ahead. Say a little bit about that phase and how it's different, how it's important. And also, again, how do organizations fall short? And what's the magic bullet here if you got one?
1: Yeah. So, I'm not sure about a magic bullet, but I was surprised. You'd be surprised. Maybe we- listeners aren't surprised. Surprised how difficult sometimes we make it to how difficult we make it for people, for the uninitiated, right? So let's just, if you're an expert museum goer, you've gone since you were two with your parents and you go down with your kids. And if this is, you are not this audience, right? We're talking about the far majority of other people who aren't that. Okay. So for all of those other people, how how really difficult, not purposely so, actually quite the opposite unconscious decision making how difficult we make it to ascertain information and to gain access to the institution right it's so by focusing on this engage moment again it's moving our minds as designers as decision makers moving our minds outside of our office which you've talked to how many people never leave their office at a museum and their job is to run influence public museum. And I always advocate for the executives, for managers, leave your office, come down to the floor of the museum, better yet walk outside of the museum and just take the pulse. So the engage portion is just that. It is inserting ourselves into, into this portion of the ecosystem where visitors are, are collecting information, trying to get a ticket, trying to get a schedule, what's happening when, what are the rules, these are the pieces. Not everyone. I've done a lot of surveys. i probably surveyed over 150 200,000 visitors in my career, all kinds of institutions. So I have a pretty good sense. Not all plan. They're absolutely the improvisers, um, but the majority do plan, right? From two weeks out to the day before. That's the far majority do. And you'd be surprised how difficult we Culturals make it to for visitors to find what they need. I think part of this, I acknowledge up front, it's resource. We only have so many dollars and so many staff, and we can't possibly proactively go out and figure out how to partner with the tourism organization or this other relevant civic organization or a third-party site like TripAdvisor. There's all kinds, of, we, there are all kinds of channels of avenues through which People obtain information or look for tickets, etc. And I know working with culturals, it's you can't. It's because of resources, many can't play with them all. But with an acknowledgement of this space, just questioning: How are folks getting to us? Are they walking? Are they taking the metro? Are they driving? How do they get tickets? How do we do we let them know? Or how do we inform the public? That this special exhibition is actually is gonna cost $25, but the rest of the museum is free. Like these kinds of details oftentimes get lost in the shuffle. And you and you hear from visitors, it was really hard to X, Y, or Z. I couldn't find X, Y, or Z. A really easy example that I think most people, most listeners certainly will understand is the visit page on museums or culturals websites is always the one of the top two pages on a website, always, right? And you'll be surprised at how many web pages are organization centric. How many web pages are organization centric, right? It's like we have 14 departments in the, muse- in the museum, and our website is structured around those 14 functions. You have to go to the science tab, drop down, go to the research. And I've argued for years to rethink, to redesign our websites to be visitor centric, right? Once you look at the website in that way, you can see, wow, we have buried our rules page, right? Or the hour or whatever, it takes seven clicks to get there, right? So why not use a least click strategy? So just that that's really in the weeds, but that's just one example of we, by increasing our empathy, our appreciation of how visitors, now that they've decided, okay, great, I've discovered, I've decided I want to go to the, you know, to the Getty, now, what are all the ways that that I, you know, what do I need to, what am I gathering in order to arrive next week or tomorrow, et cetera? So playing in that space, acknowledging that space as designers, as museum partners, as museum staff, playing in that space really helps to really to increase engagement and increase audience base.
0: So it's almost like this category, the engage, in terms of what we can be doing for our visitors, in terms of what museums are, I got to use the right word here, culturals, love that word, print the t-shirt. In terms of what culturals can do, as opposed to the category we just talked about, where we're trying to help people discover us here when they're really engaging with us, there actually isn't a silver bullet. You, it's you, you need to build the relationships. You need to cover all of these bases.
1: I have not yet found a silver bullet for the engage. It's more about de- developing. This is both for man- a- exhibition designers for managers within the institutions other partners it's more about ensuring that this conversation point exists in the planning of the exhibition of the new building of the new wing etc this co- conversation is rarely i in, in my experience at the boardroom is rarely ever discussed, or folks are aware of, right? And so I think that the silver bullets or the solution specific to that institution, to that cultural, they arise and folks come up with them when they're discussed. I've often thought, and I know that the exhibition design firms and architectural firms and planning firms, listen, I get it. There's a set contract, a set amount of money, and your job is to design a stunning, engaging exhibition, get it. Um, and I have, we're working with partners over the years, I've often encouraged press challenge us to think for the greatest impact, how? And maybe the answer is no, right? But at least let's ask the question, what could, is there an exhibition feature that would begin before they arrive? And it's a revolutionary question, right? We don't even think about that. Wow. We only think about the four walls of the museum. And maybe that's most of the time, that's all that can happen for whatever reasons. But what if? The exhibition experience began outside of, of the wall of the museum and so that's part of that engagement it's more it's more intellectual curiosity we owe it to ourselves we owe it to the public to think about that dimension of the visitor experience of the
0: visitor life cycle yeah, i totally agree and from the point of view of someone on my side of the fence someone who's doing the planning designing we it sounds to me like there's just it's just that old silo thing happening we're often suggesting because. In my particular firm, we also do a certain amount of marketing, execution, branding, and things like that for cultural organizations as well. And so we have that hat on. So we'll often say to a cultural organization, wow, we would love to design. What if we designed this entire exhibit to actually, like you were saying before, to to secretly be a form of marketing to get people to actually come back? Could the exhibit offer QR codes or some other kind of way for people to engage with it, they have to give their email. Now you've got their email. Now using that email, you could go and cultivate them over time. Maybe they'll become a member you give them a special discount. So they come back and they come to this, could we turn this into a cycle? And often we get the answer of, Wow, wow, let's do that. But the people that we're talking to generally aren't the marketing team yeah. and we invite the marketing team to the session and everyone's very excited, but then it just doesn't happen. And if I had a dollar for every time it didn't happen, I don't know, I'd have $37. But the, I don't know, it just seems like there's a, it's that silo thing again coming up because I think it's, well, let's put it this way. I've recently been at a bunch of retail places, Apple, I was in a hotel, I purchased something from Amazon. And in every one of those situations, I want to tell you, those organizations understand the visitor engagement lifecycle to AT. Every time you go to one of those, you're basically getting a masterclass in your visitor engagement lifecycle. They got the smoothest email ever coming later on, how'd you enjoy your experience, here's a discount, come back for a free espresso, whatever it might be, tell your friends, special bonus discount, all that stuff. And if cultural's just picked up, I don't know, 1% of that kind of gusto, imagine where we'd be. Am I talking crazy here?
1: Oh no. And we we were just highlighting a few techniques, a few tactics. And I'd add to that list, amazing customer service, amazing customer experience. This is really what moves. There's all kinds of data out there. The best, the most profitable in this age, the most profitable corporations, service corporate, are those that invest heavily in Authentic engagement with their customers, whether it's customer service, whether it's listening, whatever it is. But I what would you- is that
0: for a museum? Just I want to drill down into that for our visitors. What is customer excellent customer service? Are you really talking about making sure that the folks who are there in person get the training about how to talk to people, or is it across the board how the website works, how phone calls work, how you if you're going out and you're talking to Dulles or you're talking to the neighborhood or you're making that partnership with TripAdvisor? Is it all of that, or, or what? Make it a little more concrete.
1: Yep. Yeah. So God, I have so many things to <laughs> build. So it starts. So there's there's the low hanging and there's like the pull out and the broad. So going back to your experience, being in these design meetings, not always having a marketing team there, and tying that to the question you just asked. In my what I'm what I'm watching is we have a new generation of directors, right? When I began in, in this field in 2003 and 2004, there was a certain generation of leaders running our cultural's. And by the time I left the Smithsonian and certainly working across the country in, t- in t- 2023, I'm seeing the overall replacement of that generation that I was working with when I came into the field. And I think a really good example of an amazing leader is Melissa Chu at the Hershorn. She is. She is a new kind. She's this. She's, I think, epitomizes this new type of what I call market-oriented director. PhD has her bona fide. Like she, and also because she has those academic credentials, when she sits at the table and she's market-oriented as well, right? She's able to welcome in marketing across from curatorial. And she's able to balance the conversation where historically curatorial gets to run the roost and everyone else is, everyone else's opinions are must defer to the curatorial team. So leadership is where it begins. Customer service begins with leadership. That's just it. When you have leadership that understand that the success of the institution, donors, customers, all the metrics of success, moving the needle, authentic engagement, when the director, when the boards of directors, have that appreciation, it stems from there, right? So I, I would be remiss if I did not start or make sure that the museum listeners, the folks who work within the institutions who listen to the podcast, it's really, this is really important, right? At the quote unquote ground level, right? In the field, if you will, training, empathy training. When I started at American Indian in New York City, the The museum visitation had fallen off from seven hundred and fifty thousand a year down to one hundred and thirteen or so thousand a year after 9-11. This is two thousand and seven or eight is when I was brought in to help build back some audience and a lot of listening, a lot of a lot of interviews with community, with leadership, with staff, et cetera, et cetera. And it was clear, very clear, that there was a cult within the institution a cultural divide between security staff and the professional, other professional staff, designers, educators, etc. And you know wh- what I quickly learned, and it's been proven at every single institution I've ever worked within. Afterwards, when there's not, when there is not empathy between colleagues or staff departments within an institution, it's impossible really to have empathy for the visitors. It just doesn't. It just it's a mirror. It's absolutely connected. It's all one 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 organic entity. And there's a brilliant thought leader in Brooklyn. Her name is Isabel Byron. And she has developed this really smart, it was two-day workshop. We were able to (laughs) right-size it into a day for a lot of museums. So we offer empathy training. And on its face, it is empathy for visitors. How do we build empathy? What are the tools, the hard and fast tools on the tool belt to increase our empathy with visitors, right? Humor, respect, active listening. But the, the secret sauce in this process is that you're helping to build empathy between colleagues. Colleagues begin to develop empathy for folks across departments. And you want to make sure that these workshops are cross-pollinated. So security or with volunteers or with leaders or with frontline staff. So you have these cross-pollinated workshops. And in these, for the first time, oftentimes, colleagues, senior staff are hearing directly about the pains, the annoyances, the frustrations, uh, the situations that like frontline staff, volunteers, visitors, security officers have to deal with, right? So by building that empathy within the institution for ourselves, with colleagues, it then spills out onto the floor and we have that much more capacity for empathy with our visitors. And that's really the backbone of good customer experience, customer service, right? Is that kind of improved response engagement face-to-face or otherwise with our visitors.
0: So that is actually a little bit of a magic bullet. We said before there really isn't a magic bullet for this phase, but there there comes- like that's at the heart of, I, in a, in another podcast recently, we were talking about empathy being, the. it's trending. The latest cool thing it is not iPhone 32 coming out, it is empathy. Yep. And I think that's, Yeah, I think there's a lot of museum directors, a lot of visitor services people that if they knew, wow, I could just get some empathy training yep. in here and that would actually bump, that would move the needle. That seems like an awfully good thing. Who wouldn't need that? Let's take it to the next step. Now we've gotten our empathy training and now we're in phase three. Now, we're moving from the pre-visit to the during the visit phase. We have three more phases left. This is phase three. We've got five total. And this is arrive phase. The visitor's arriving on site. They're looking for orientation. They're looking for direction. What are some important things we need to do for the visitor? And I'm especially curious, what are some ways that cultural's fall short? Because this, now we're getting into my area, like I'm very familiar with, I do a lot of thinking about what happens when the visitors get inside those four walls that you're mentioning and helping to design the walls. What, Where do we fall short? What are we messing I'm
1: up? Going, yeah, it's a great question. I'm going to start by asking permission to take the fall short phrasing off the table because I want to use some examples and I do not think that any of these institutions, it's something that we have not, that we don't think it was just not part of our training. It's just not part of our paradigm. And so part of the work is, I'm not sure that shifting paradigm is equal to falling short, not falling short. So it's because of that, I ask, <laughs> poli- so arrive, physically arrive. We have to get really the little Google guy. When you look at a Google map and there's like the aerial satellite view, and you drag the little guy over to the intersection and then it switches the paradigm know, the world and you're now on the intersection looking, you know, right. it's right. like that. All right. Get out of your office, put down your laptop, in your mind's eye or physically, switch around, go down there and stand at the foot. And you'll be a funny example. I'll give you two examples. Funny example. The National Mall, something like 60 million, like an enormous amount of traffic on that piece of property, that long linear piece of property every year. The Natural History Museum, built in 1910. Gorgeous, the neoclassic, five the third most visited museum in the world after the Louvre and Air and Space Museum down the block, and you look at the mall and you look at the building and there are these gorgeous regal stairs. I think there's something like thirty seven stairs that take you from the mall up to the up to the doors of the museum into the rotunda. It's this regal kind of experience. Now, baby strollers, wheelchairs, good luck right? An older person, good luck. And so for a hundred years, you had to walk around essentially three blocks to the quote unquote back of the museum and go in that direction. Come on. So that's just a really good visual of arrive. And so brought that attention up, pressed it. And in 2015, 2016, the museum and Congress and donors finally funded. And now there are ramps. We redid the front of the front the front door of the museum, if you will. And now there are ramps that go into the more that we think about arrive being not just walking through the doors of the institution, but this public space, urban space, connective space between our properties, the more we increase the visitation, engagement, et cetera.
0: Yeah, so it's the Google guy. Yep. Yeah it's your you're landing on the map you're not landing at the four walls you're arriving at a location on a map at which the institution is one of the things you might see you have to correct for all of
1: and that. we're back out not exactly the same obviously but we're back out the similar sort of idea concept in the discovery phase of inserting the institution in the museum in, in the neighborhood at the airport in a similar way now that we think about this public space or these connective spaces between now we how can we activate maybe it's not a piece of a public art but how can we activate? and oftentimes in my experience work bids business improvement districts cities transportation agencies within cities are actually interested to activate spaces we've all seen in the past 15 or so years we see more cities that are painting with colors crosswalks the striping we'll brand intersection with certain light features, or we are activating public spaces, these intersections and such in, in I don't know, more enjoyable, I don't know, more lively kind of expressions. And I, I've seen a lot of, uh, cultures have success when they approach an, a city agency or a partner like that and say, hey, how can we activate, we'll find donors or whatever, how can we activate this space? And so I think when we talk about Arrive, it's, we can go into, of course, into the building itself, but for me, for colleagues I speak to, for clients, acknowledging that space there, you are you are not only helping those targeted visitors who are arriving there to go to you, but also <laughs> better chance of capturing walk by. I think there was a number I did a year long study, and for uh, museums, and for. Art museums, art museums are visited less nationally than science museums or history museums. And we can talk about why, but art museums typically in these cluster areas like this facility on the mall, art museums have a higher, a higher count of visitors who what I call opportunistic visits. They went in because they just walked by saw it and went into the building. So for these institutions where that's relevant, activating that public space or activating the spaces around outside of the building's campus increases visitation but by way of increasing curiosity for those uninitiated.
0: We're going to we're going to talk about 4 and 5 in just a minute, but let me do a quick halftime show, quick station identification. If you're just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners designed for culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also write a review in apple podcasts go right over and write one or you can just tell a friend word of mouth the easiest way to check out makingthemuseum.com for everything about this podcast and the newsletter that goes with it now back to the show today we are talking with samir bitar about the visitor engagement life cycle and next up we're still in the during the visit uh, stage and we're at phase phase Stage and we're at phase four, and that is the experience phase. That's, I guess, the meat and the sandwich, but there's more to the sandwich than just the meat. The visitor here in this phase does the experience, uses the amenities, perhaps makes purchases. Is this the be all and the end all? How should we, I won't say fall short, but how should we reframe the way we think about it? What insights have come to you about this phase? This is the phase where I'm the most active in my professional practice, so I'm really eager to hear what you have to say.
1: Yeah. This is this is very, this is a very different, I think the workshop, how we go about discovering for all, for institution types is the same, I think, but solutions are hyper-specific to the type of institution, right? So I'm going to make examples, say things, and I know that these are not the same for all. Institution types: museums, concert halls, cultural cemeteries, theaters. So, just last week, I went to see the like the National Ballet of Sweden at the Dorothy Chandler P- Pavilion. Amazing space, gorgeous space. And at intermission, it was a very tough experience. Like the stage, brilliant, like world class, obviously. And then there's intermission, and you have. These cues to get coffee or champagne or cookies, and the lines are literally 25, 30 minutes long, and there's not enough time to actually get anything. And you can't bring your if you're in the back of the line, you only had two minutes. you you bought your champagne, you bought your whatever. And now you can't take it into the theater for obvious reasons. that's the that's a really tough experience, right? You have a world class ballet company, you have a world class venue. And you have a not world-class, and most people they forgive that. Most people are like, oh, they look past that. It's usual. That's normal. We don't expect a ballet context to be amazing customer service. It's an amazing ballet. And you know what? Actually, if we I challenge that. If we are looking to broaden audiences and go beyond what are there's a term used to the past one, the blue-haired audience, these aging audience members. If we really need more young people, diverse audience types in our, to fill our seats, to ensure our longevity, our sustainability, then, you know, we need to look comprehensively at every piece of the experience within the venue. And yes, world-class programming is absolutely a piece of it, probably the most important piece of it, but other pieces that make up the experience are just as. A good example the male and female bathrooms, there is always an insane line for females and there's no line for male. Like We should probably redesign our bathrooms such that there's just more facilities for females than men. This is a, an example, right? So at peak periods mm-hmm. at a big museum that I worked with, I witnessed this, and we at peak periods, we would convert one of the male bathrooms on this certain floor to female, because that just, there weren't enough demand to have whatever, three mil and three 15 mil throughout the building, so we would convert. So that kind of dynamic thinking about the most functional, operational, maybe boring pieces of the experience, that's hypercritical. The lines for coffee or cookies, the bathrooms, those are really important pieces when we, when we think about the experience. Obviously, it's about, what I just said, I think is really I'm not sure. It's not so much for exhibition design firms, but definitely architects. Architectural firms need need to hear that and are hearing that as well as museum or cultural, culturals themselves. The when moving beyond those operational pieces, which sometimes are the make or break it for visitors, looking at the exhibition itself. There, listen. Your firm is brilliant. I there are scores of brilliant exhibition design. I'm loath to to wade into those waters because. More often than not, you guys have taught me things in, in, in my partnerships or projects. If you have a specific question, but I think what I bring to the table typically are things that folks aren't thinking about. That's what I, I don't need to necessarily underscore other brilliant ideas that are on the table. I tend to, what I, the role I serve, Jonathan, and the role that I think every cultural needs at a senior level is a chief visitor advocate, a voice of the visitor and there are a lot of brilliant creatives and brilliant academics thinking about how to make the exhibition cool or engaging awesome and I, i've introduced ideas fine but what the more boring or the more not obvious pieces are the areas that i see underlooked, under investigated uh, and if we do investigate and we do explore we do move the needle and oftentimes significantly
0: i think it seems like to me if you move the needle a lot more than that, the project you and I are working on together at the moment, we're talking about details that someone might say are mundane, like, you said, like a restroom or a bench to be comfortable, or where's the desk? How big is it? How many people are back there to help people? Is it hard to get into the place? What's the angle of the slope getting in the front door? Is it too sunny? Is it too hot? You could say, oh, these are all mundane things. Everyone, you should suffer through this torture in order to see the elegant ballet. But That's really not a very good... Sales approach, that's not a very good starting gambit with the general public, but also it also reminds me of that old Maslow's Pyramid of Needs, right? where down at the bottom, at the very top is spiritual self-realization. Who am I? What are we doing here? How can I improve myself? How can we make the world better? That's like at the very top, but down at the very bottom, you can't think those thoughts. You can't have the kinds of transformations that culturals have as their mission to give to people. You can't do that unless your creature comforts. At the bottom of that Maslow's pyramid of needs is the physical things, shelter, food, things like that. And the next up, I think is safety. And then somewhere along there is a sense that other people are nearby or something tribal. But you're talking about, it just seems to me that if we don't answer these basic needs and we don't provide them, we actually cannot achieve the fullest capacity of the actual mission. Like you, it will stop, it will not happen. And to your point about the the ballet, a beautiful ballet, but it sounds like your memory of that experience will not be about, wow, I just got, I just remembered this one thing in the ballet that just, it's been a month and it just hit me. And wow, that was amazing. A month later, you're going to be like, boy, I'm still thinking about that champagne that I had to guzzle and throw half of it away as I ran back to my seat. So I think that chief visitor advocate is I think you're right. I think it is a must, and I think it it feels like a call to action. People like me, to more actively think about this, because I think we're going to be fiddling while Rome burns. We're going to be doing all of this stuff, and it's not going to hit.
1: Yeah, and I don't want to leave the listener thinking that that person's job is the non sexy operational grung work. You know, it, it there are uh, roles, there are uh, tasks that are hyper sexy. I'll give you examples. One 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 habit uh will really firms all over the market not just culturals, not just nonprofits a habit has been to only look at quantitative data just quantitative and there's a lot of evidence there's a lot of research a lot of proof that we must collect qualitative right we must go out and listen ask you have to be careful you don't know, ask 10 people and suddenly they represent the entire populace obviously but nonetheless we must go collect qualitative so example we and I'm, i was guilty of this as a manager within a museum New technologies are coming out. I want to nerd out on technology. My colleagues want to. Suddenly, we are insinuating new digital experiences, technologies within the museum experience. And we're not seeing high pickup rates. How many museums between 2012 and 2020 launched an app and it went nowhere? So it was probably in 2015, we fielded a survey and I was gobsmacked. Completely, duh. We ask visitors, I'm talking and we're seeing, and they're like, I don't want digital in a museum. No, I get digital at school and at home and at there here and there and everywhere. I come to museums that I want to break. I want the authentic. I'm coming there because it's the rare view of that thing or it's beautiful. It's rare, beautiful. It's serene. It's reflective. All these things that the rest of society are not, right? Or it's a safe space to convene conversations. We don't have many safe spaces left in America where we can have political or tough conversations safely. Uh, And so we that completely was missed. We didn't think about that. We wanted to, because we liked it, we wanted to nerd out and insinuate technology into the museum experience. With that education, with that appreciation, we began to come at exhibition design, building design in a very different way. So instead of being in the boardroom, being in the, the exhibition design rooms, meetings—what kind of technology might work there? Instead, first go talk to visitors. So we did, and one of the biggest reasons, the hurdles that art museums across the country, contemporary art museums specifically, have to overcome, is intimidation. Most Americans are intimidated by abstract art, contemporary art. It's, they don't get Kandinsky. They're like, they or what rule is am I missing here? Why should I? and so we dug deeper and we said well what is it and they told us lots of people said if i knew if, if i saw the artist right i could hear the artist's explanation and for a lot of us within museums we're like, oh no that's no you shouldn't have to no one should narrate this for you should be your own experience that's one view and another view is hey there are visitors a big block of visitors who actually want to hear from the visitor from the artist or why they made or the context for this work so that's what we did. We built a specific app, just not a museum app. This was a very specific app that allowed folk. It was just that. We worked for a year on speaking to 25 artists, collecting videos, and you hover the phone without much inter- interaction at all. You hover the phone at a piece of art, the art itself, not a QR code, and the camera recognizes it and it triggers the artist pops up in this app and it begins telling you the context, why of this piece of work. Highly big success, lots of awards, lots of love by visitors still being used, high pickup rates. So that's just, again, being the chief visitor advocate, there are some fun, sexy executions, not just the bathrooms <laughs> and the long copy lines. Under really understanding what visitors need before we set out, spend money, and design interventions and exhibitions, I think you'll find far more engagement, word of mouth buzz, and success.
0: In other words, just stop. You've mentioned sort of the... Being at the boardroom where the sort of get out and go look yeah. paradigm, yeah. you can do one or the other. And it's much better to get out and go look and talk to people and be actually out there and ask people. So it just sounds like one, I don't know, one med- medicine here would be for everybody in this industry, whenever they think of something they'd like to do that visitors are going to use, just say to themselves, do the visitors want it? Is this, Is this—is there a need, an unmet need this will satisfy? Is this something that is going to move the needle for the visitors. Let's ask the visitors about it, and rather than just come up with the idea or have a donor come up with the idea and say, let's do this kind of an app, and nobody wants an app to tell them got to, to get to the restroom. But this novel form of technology, was, were you talking about the Hirschhorn Eye? Is that the app that you were talking about? No, but, yeah. So that is a great one. Very simple, very straightforward. But what I love about your story about how it came about is it came about because you asked visitors, what, or maybe you didn't ask them directly, but you figured out what is it? It's a barrier for visitors? What would make them fall in love with this thing that we all love? And it's explanations from artists. Let me hear from the artist. Then I'll look at the artwork. Hey, I know that artist. I like this artwork. I know why that artist did this. I know why that blue thing is mm-hmm. over there. I think that's just great. But it's a very simple paradigm. It's just ask the visitors. Yeah. Yeah. You know, do something that solves a need for the visitors, not that something that solves a need for the donor, yeah. or solves a need for the staff, right. or solves- only. A- right?
1: Scratches way, so right, you still want to serve that, but not. Old.
0: Right. It can no, do both. Exactly. It can, as you said, it's a sexy thing yeah. to do. Just make sure you do your sexy thing.
1: And maybe there's not the, the appetite, funding, whatever. Maybe we can't always have a chief visitor advocate, chief visitor officer on staff. Mm-hmm. Fine. But what if all of our exhibition design teams, projects, whatever, building design teams, what if we identify one of us? Throughout this entire one-year process, when we're designing this thing, there is this one, your job is to be the voice of the visitor. And that's their, they go about and research, they collect whatever. But what if we inserted that uh, dominant voice on these teams? I think that's one of the, without bringing in the actual visitor, which can be nightmares. let's be honest sometimes. But having someone with the, charged with the sole responsibility of doing just that or bringing that voice, challenging, do we need that or do they want that? Or is that something that we that infusion i've only seen yield i would say more successful exhibition designs or even building designs we did this exact same thing with the Biarke Ingels group when we were rethinking the the south mall complex of the smithsonian that's a brilliant team they already had that feature that role embedded in their design team
0: let's jump to the to number five now we're in the post visit this is the follow-up phase follow-up in this phase the visitor signs up for emails gives you their feedback, maybe becomes a member. There are all kinds of other things that might happen. And also in your diagram, let's remember that phase five leads back to phase one. The part of post-visit is actually to come back again and maybe bring your friends. What do you see working in this phase? How do we need to reframe our perspective here?
1: So this admittedly, this is Typically, if not absolutely for every, <laughs> I'm, lo- I'm loath to, to make absolutes. But I, in my experience, this is absolutely the most difficult. This is the most challenging for designers, managers to to solve for. But going back to the very beginning of the conversation, word of mouth, that's, how I think, that's the best, the easiest, the most efficient way to increase visitation or certainly broaden that to diversify audiences. So we have to look at it. Because it's more difficult. So it's not so obvious the things, the solutions aren't so obvious. So, yes, follow-up membership survey. So, how do we do it really? And this is where I would I'm gonna get very specific because this is hard. And I think listeners and I think museum decision makers need this list of solutions because it's taken me 15 years to figure out. So it gets a little it gets a little in the weeds and a little operation, but that's where the solutions I have seen best play out. So most more often than not, Ultras over the past 20, 25, 30 years as software IT, all these tech solutions have come online, we have brought them online in this ad hoc as needed way, manner, right? Without this sort of comprehensive or strategic kind of approach, right? So there are solutions now. There are technological solutions. They're called voice of the customer platforms. These integrated pieces of software that do away with the seven or 21 that you might be using, integrate them into one. And without that, a lot of things I'm going to say would be very costly, mainly with staff time to execute, right? So after a visitor, after a person leaves and comes for a visit, now, whether it's a, a ticketed event... A ticketed experience is going to be easier because you wouldn't have their email address. Free museums or free institutions are trickier because there's maybe no mechanism to which to capture email. But nonetheless, for in the post visit, triggering automatically through software or through this sort of voice of the customer platform, you can trigger a post visit automatic survey, seven question survey, or some level of engagement after the fact, right? That without that kind of software solution, I know that you have to have a staff do that. And that's hard hard pressed to do. It's probably not going to happen because it's just, you don't have the bandwidth to to do. So that's why I started the conversation talking about IT or this, these sort of software solutions, because it's about proactively reaching back into that person or those people's lives. And that's probably most efficiently done through software or these kinds of solutions and not manually. But this is the most obvious, right? There are also, again, costly, but there are the the post-visit follow-ups, not every month, not every quarter, but more than once a year in the communities, in specific, whether it be teacher communities, affinity group communities. So that's reaching out into the community occasionally and taking a pulse. How are we doing? Or what are you getting from us? That outreach community, that's also a post-visit.
0: One of the very first things you said was that word-of-mouth marketing is, takes a little bit longer, but by far it's the best choice for cultural organizations or for culturals, as we're saying here. And you just made that come completely full circle. So we talked through the discover phase. We talked about the engage phase. We talked about arrival. We talked about experience. Now we're talking about the follow-up. But let me see if I understand this. I think what you're saying is that all of those phases have to be Improved and done correctly for word of mouth to be triggered Which will get more people to come in the door. The reason we're talking about this visitor engagement life cycle Is you have to think about all those points whether they're the boring things we talked about like getting the champagne line short enough Or the sexy thing that we talked about like the app that allows you to speak hear directly from the heart of artists or anything else like that
1: Yes, yes, and we have to Monitor. We have to put the thermometer in the in this phase of the journey. We yes, it's we have to make steps one through four sticky, very sticky, a sticky experience, so that we are top of mind. We are. It's a memorable and the positive framework. And that's not enough. In the five, what I mean to say is, we have we can't look away after four. It's okay, cool. We made an amazing experience. Now let's see what happens. No, we have to insert ourselves. Proactively, whether that is collecting feedback, how was your visit, or that is offering the next cool thing that matches what you did? Great. You love this pasta exhibition. We have this new, this thing coming up, this live demonstration happening in two weeks. Whether it's that, there are all kinds of ways to insinuate ourselves into that post visit phase. But my point is we need to look at it as closely as we're looking at one through four and not just unconsciously go, okay we did one through four awesome now let's see what happens
0: so a couple of i said a couple of just tactical questions one you're when you're talking about the the sort of visitor engagement software you're talking about is that automated you're saying it's it's hard for staff to make phone calls i presume that survey says how do we do seven questions survey you like this would you like this here's a discount here's an well, option for some- membership whatever it yeah. may be or what are you left your shopping cart un unfulfilled or whatever it is that all that's automated, automated. right? It I, comes out smoothly yeah, and like, automatically uh, like, the staff don't have to do this. It sounds like it's, Oh my God, be it's not. It's
1: we way too much. It w- it's impossible. Let's be very clear. I'm very it'd be impossible for culturals to have that, that army of staff. Now it's, there are two leading pieces there. Are, I don't know that we need to promote them, but there are two great companies who do this really well just for culturals, They're out there and they do just that. It's this comprehensive, Solution. It's automated, right? So after Jonathan and his family leave, and they saw this exhibition about the history of glass blowing, there's this follow-up email, right, or a ping, however that comes into his family's life. There's this, hey, hey how did it go? We here's seven quick questions. Did we fail with that? Maybe there's this amazing catalog was produced just for this exhibition. So maybe it's a. It doesn't have to be a you know, an overt marketing or an overt retail sell. It can be, but it's this, the most important point here is that you use an automated software solution, you don't have the staff to do it, to follow up with the visitor. A, you're reminding them. <laughs> and ideally, you're also assessing so that you can improve and you're giving them a an opportunity, most often they want to, an opportunity to let you know how it went, right? And the software Solutions that will integrate with things like TripAdvisor. So when folks leave review there, it integrates on these third party sites, right? So that's why I talk to every single client. And I've always pushed this within museums I've worked within. You, we have to adopt evolve. These are what the big Fortune 500 companies use, right? And now there are cost effective solutions for nonprofit culturals to use. And we just need to know about them and adopt them.
0: I, we got to get these in the show links. These are voice of the customer platforms. You mentioned there are a couple that you've had experience with. What are Uh, they? So
1: what is is Denali, D-E-N-A-L-I, they have a good one. And then BlackBaud has one.
0: I would think they would. Great. We'll get the, I'll get those links from you and put them in the show notes.
1: That is awesome. Yeah. Again, it's a strategic approach, stepping out, maybe reordering organization or budget. It gets nerdy like that. But Cust- leading customer experience. Amazing experiences are not just the amazing iPhone. It's the operational nuance behind the scenes that 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 drive and support that amazing
0: product on the market. So one thing I'm thinking is, as a exhibition planner and designer myself, outside of those these four walls that we're talking about, how can people like me or people who are developing exhibitions or people who are on that side of the fence, how can we contribute to this to this challenge, to this post-visit, to this follow-up phase, it seems to be as beyond our control, there must be something that we can do, some way that we can help.
1: Exactly, so we're talking about the, the technology solutions, the post-visit follow-up, the voice of the customer platforms, et cetera, then that's critical. A But it also, the post-visit, if we think about it w- within the experience phase of the cycle, right? We think about it within the designing and exhibition itself, designing the building itself, there are, once we think about post-visit, in the, that, that design phase, questions like, how it, it, are there solutions, it, are there experiences within the exhibition that have them leave us something, we, and the software, the exhibition, the museum... It pings them afterwards or they go back and they deposit something into this interface database and it appears in the exhibition. In the old school days, there was this write your message on a board physically analog. And of course, there's not one one answer solution, but uh, we have seen success, stickiness, if you will, when we are in the design phase of an exhibition or a gallery and we're sensitive, we're aware, we're empathetic to the post-visit phase. And we think to, our, to with each other, what kind of an experience, what is there room for a post-visit follow-up within this exhibition, narrative, context, topic, et cetera?
0: People who are planning things that are on the four, in, within the four walls can be planting the hooks yeah. or putting out the hand to say, we're going to build things into the on-site experience. The experience part of this is phase four experience that are related to phase five, the follow-up. And I presume to other things too like i could just as easily say i'd like to plant things in this that pick up where where the discover phase started within the experience so that i can be a good citizen of the life cycle essentially i can keep that wheel spinning for you in what i do i just need to be aware of the life cycle i'm part of it i have to help everything that came before and everything that came after in the role that i play
1: and th- and this what if in, in in a city that has a lot of museums what if in my exhibition about apples, what if there's a prompt that drives, this was amazing, go look at this about trays or apples over at that museum across town. So it's not only, it's again, designing from the visitor experience, not only from the institution's perspective. So sticky moments within exhibition design that perhaps feed back into that specific exhibition, certainly feed back into a repeat visit to that museum, perhaps drives to other culturals and through that kind of partnership they'll drive to you that kind of i hate the phrase out of the box that kind of hold back perspective when thinking about designing the spaces or exhibitions we've seen a lot of success in in fact driving that that word of mouth or that repeat visitation
0: love it that's such a yet another great insight love this Mm. awesome awesome (laughs) let's do a let's do a recap we've been talking about the visitor engagement life cycle with Samir Bhattar. Five main phases, before, during, and after a visit that are in a circle. It's circular, not a straight line. Phase five leads back to phase one in a continuous cycle. So in the pre-visit chunk, we have phase one, discover. The visitor is gathering information. Phase two, engage. The visitor is actively planning a visit, getting tickets and calling. Then the next chunk is during the visit, and that's phase three. The arrive phase, visitor arrives on site, looks for orientation, direction, etc. Number four, experience phase. There, the visitor does the actual experience, uses the amenities, makes purchases, tries to order champagne. And then last but not least, and very difficult and challenging, but there are voice of the customer platforms now to automate some of this. That is the post-visit phase, which is so important in the follow-up Follow-up phase, visitor signs up for emails, gives feedback, maybe becomes a member, and most importantly, gives out that word of mouth and maybe returns so that this entire cycle operates like a wheel, like a flywheel to generate the word of mouth that's the best form of marketing for these culturals. How did I do? Did I, did I pass the, did I pass the yeah, test? I
1: mean, that's, let's print, go to press, sing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. Wow. Wow. This is, I was, I'm often taking notes like a maniac during these sessions. This, I was taking notes like two maniacs. There's just so many mic drop moments in what we just did about some It's been great to have you on the show. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Thank you. This is, uh, yeah, this is how, yeah, this is how we move needle, right? This is how we move needle.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if listeners would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Email, website, LinkedIn? All uh, the above.
1: You... Yeah. Website, theartofconsulting.org
0: theartofconsulting.org. Perfect. And we'll get your coordinates in the show notes for the session. As you're listening to the show, you just take a look at wherever you got the show from and the show notes will be there. All right. Thank you so much, Samir. Okay. (laughs) Exciting. Excellent. I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you'd like to get in touch with me or have an idea for the show, go to makingthemuseum.com and hit contact You can also find me on LinkedIn under my name, Jonathan Alger, A-L-G-E-R. I'm always looking out for new links in or at the website of my firm, CNG Partners. You can Google that. Okay, that's it. By the way, did you know this podcast has an older sister? It's a short newsletter, three days a week under the same name, Making the Museum. One quick insight each day from museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros. You also get word of new Episodes like this, when they drop through that newsletter, you can subscribe at makingthemuseum.com. There's a big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.